You can open your Bibles to the small book of Amos. In your Old Testaments, Daniel comes after Ezekiel, then Hosea, Joel, Amos. The book of Amos. As your pastor, I want to make sure this day that we as a church, and especially us fathers, so that we can teach our children, I hope that they can learn from this day also, but that we can teach them the godly perspective that they ought to have toward an event like this past week. There is a godly perspective, and it's no longer taught or seen very much in this country. And so in our homes, it ought to be known and heard, and our children ought to be well established in it. All of you children ought to be able to know how to look at what happened this past week. Now, in case these tapes are ever listened to in the future, in order to remind any hearer of what happened this past week on Tuesday, four of our commercial airliners were hijacked, full of fuel headed for the West Coast. They were hijacked on the East Coast by some suicide squads, and they were aimed like missiles into the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and toward our White House, but that fourth one was thwarted. There's about 5,000 dead in our nation, and the cost is going to be somewhere between 20 and 50 billion to replace and cover all the loss. That's what happened. Now, we live in a day when events like that are known in exhaustive detail by all of us because of the media. In the past, when Babylon fell, if you lived far enough away, you might not know about it for a month. But today we're able to watch it over and over and over again and to hear thousands and thousands of words of commentary and opinions of pundits and others who want to tell us their perspective on what happened. That that media coverage that we hear is exhaustive. I mean, it covers the whole thing. It deals with all the details. It's instantaneous. It's continual. It's philosophical. It's always presenting a philosophical worldview and perspective. Always. There is no television without religion. It all has religion baked into it, and especially our news media. There's only been two that I've heard so far that spoke the truth a little bit, quite a bit, to their credit. That was Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson. If you heard Jerry Falwell, he said the right things. Now, where he said them proved that his heart wasn't in the matter completely because he was compromising to get the television audience at the 700 Club because there's a great theological difference between, there should be, between Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson of the 700 Club. But Jerry Falwell is the only one that was willing to point out the fact that we deserve what happened and we deserve far worse and more is coming unless this nation repents for its gross and horrible, profane wickedness. The media that you listen to and that I listen to didn't say the word God. None of them. None of them would say the word God. They wouldn't use the word judgment. They wouldn't use the word sin. They wouldn't use the word repentance, self-examination, national pride, moral decay, or speak of any religious differences. Nothing. It's just, oh, let's feel sorry for those that have lost someone, and let's think of the rest as heroes. Now, both of those thoughts are okay in their proper place, and their proper place is an infinite distance below another thought. God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, is king, and he is chastening this nation, and we deserve it unless we repent. And the bottom line, my brethren, is not for us to spend the day thinking only of our nation's wickedness and how they ought to repent, but what we can find in our own lives for which we ought to repent. Here Here are the words with which I will end today. And my family heard them last night, and the Carnells. If our lives do not equal or exceed our rhetoric. 
We are the world's greatest hypocrites. The holiness of our lives must exceed anything we say. Otherwise, we are foolishly and presumptuously hypocritical. However, while that warning is something that that's what I'm going to conclude with today, and I'm telling you right out front, it's us looking at our own selves. Yet at the same time, we must admit and confess that this nation has turned its back on God. It is not a Christian nation. And it's proved that so well the past five days. And God is judging it, and rightfully so. This was a small event in the history of the world. The world acts like it was an enormous event. It was a very small event in cost, in destruction, and lives lost. They have forgotten 6,000 years of history. The great There have been great rulers in times past like Genghis Khan and Attila the Hun and Stalin and others. We have many of them in the Bible. There would be 500,000 men lost in a single day of hand-to-hand combat in the Bible of a nation that only numbered maybe 5 to 10 million people. That's 10% of the population. That would be 28 million in our country in one day in hand-to-hand combat. And that was, you've read your Old Testaments, you've seen those battles over and over again. But they have focused on this event because it was rather shocking and because they have the media tools now to show it to us over and over again. They act like it's a catastrophic event of overwhelming magnitude. But it only happened because of our technological advances in this country and the great freedom that we allow people to get into the cockpits of our commercial airliners. Otherwise, they couldn't have done it. But that beside the point. There have been far worse events in history. And when the Bible, some of the verses that we're going to look at are verses in context of military campaigns and destructions that happened on men far worse than what happened in New York City. Far worse. Don't forget that every single day 100 people die in automobile accidents in our country and no one pays them any time or attention. 100 a day. That means it only takes 50 days to get up to 5,000 again in our automobiles. I mean, death is a part of living. But we need to be sober about it because we need to see the hand of God in it. Now, I hope that some of you were able to witness the national prayer service that took place yesterday, to watch it on television or to hear it on the radio so that you would have a little bit of perspective for some comments that I want to make. It was the final proof and the clearest proof that our nation has turned its back on God. They did not go to seek God. It's not time to sing the battle hymn of the Republic. It's not time to sing a mighty fortress is our God. It's time to lay in sackcloth and ashes and beg for God's forgiveness for our nation's sins. There was no mention of all the evil that our nation is presently guilty of at all. It was just a continual repetition of God bless America. Why should God bless America? We don't live righteously. Why should he bless America? Because we're America? Because we put a pyramid with an all-seeing eye on our money? Why should God bless America? God blesses the righteous. And all those that forget God, he turns into hell. We can be thankful that we have a president who calls for a day of prayer. You know, when you see that, that he calls for a day of prayer, you think, this is good and godly. But then when you find out what they're praying for, the victims and revenge... Instead of praying for those two things, we ought to be praying for God to forgive us for our sins. Because we must repent. When evil happens, in the day of adversity, consider. Ecclesiastes 7.14 Because God sets days of adversity. And those days of adversity are for us to consider our lives. The Lord would say, consider your ways. And if we consider our ways as a nation, we are very wicked as a nation. We have to speak out against the great compromise of apostolic Christianity with what they call religion today. That national prayer service had a combination of Christ deniers and God-haters, the likes of which would never meet in a place like that if the president didn't ask for them all to come together. It was incredibly pitiful. They had women preachers up there addressing Hindus and Buddhists along with Christians. They had people apologizing for using the name of Jesus Christ. It was horrible. 
Would to God that Billy Graham, who should know better, would have stood up in that pulpit and opened the 66 calibers of a King James Bible and let the hammer fall on what was being done in that service. And if he didn't have the courage, when our president got up to give a sermonette, I wish he had done it. Do you know how blessed that would have been if our president would have stood up and opened up a King James Bible and read a few verses out of, out of it and repented for the wickedness of our nation? But nothing like that happened at all. They just showed the great compromise of the carnal Christianity of our generation. Remember? A form of godliness. And unless you are well grounded in the word of God to have watched that two-hour service with a pipe organ and all those dignitaries there together, all the presidents but Ronald Reagan and his wife, if you would have seen that, it was moving to the flesh. And that's what is so deceitful about it to see them come together in unity and to say the name God and to sing, A mighty fortress is our God. And to sing, Mine eyes have seen the glory and the coming of the Lord in the battle hymn of the Republic. And to see all that and to see the military color guard and to see the beautiful cathedral, all of it is moving to the flesh, but the Word of God says it is a stench in God's nostrils because we're a wicked nation and the men gathered there were wicked. And the men gathered there did not say one thing about righteousness. Billy Graham did say the nation ought to repent. But look what Billy Graham did. He followed a woman preacher. He was led up there by a cardinal. Listen. He's compromising, making his way to the pulpit to say repent. It doesn't mean anything. We must repent. Amen. And our nation must repent if we're to be saved. Listen, we want God's thoughts on this subject rather than the thoughts of Dan Rather or college students. I do not know why the media goes into college to ask the dumbest segment of our population what they think about what happened. It's ridiculous. 19-year-old morons sitting there who don't know anything. The most difficult thing they've done in life is play video games. They don't know a clue. They've never worked a day in their lives. They don't own property. They've never paid taxes. They know nothing. And it, microphone, yes, give us your opinion. All of America is listening. What do you want to offer to 50 million people as to what happened? Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's go to the word of God. My opinions are just as worthless. The only opinions that matter are what has God said about events like this. Dealing with disasters. What does the Bible say? Right. We don't want to know about Peter Jennings or victims' family members or senators or grieving girlfriends or anyone else. What does God say about it? I want to say, brethren, that the Lord is lifting his hand of protection from our nation. Is that difficult for you to see? We have lived in the most protected, pampered society with a combination of peace and prosperity, the likes of which the world's never seen. And he is lifting his hand to allow something like that to happen. Not only did he allow it, he purposed it and he planned it and he executed it with the stooges that actually did the flying. Because that is the hand of God. And that's what we're going to learn today. But he is lifting his hand to allow something that dramatic and that costly occur in our society when he has protected it so thoroughly for many years. Let's go to Amos chapter 3 and verse 6. We have here, in several verses, a list of rhetorical questions. They start in verse 3, and they run down through the end of verse 6. They are rhetorical questions that we should be, you should know the truth well enough that it's not difficult for you to answer. This is not a quiz given by the Lord where you have to wonder, is it yes or no? Amos 3, 6. Shall a trumpet be blown in the city, and the people not be afraid? In times past, the watchman, if he saw an army approaching or danger approaching, would blast on the trumpet. If the people in the city heard the particular blast in the trumpet, they knew that danger was approaching. Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? No, the people will be afraid when a trumpet is blown in the city. Shall there be evil in a city and the Lord hath not done it? There cannot be evil in a city when the Lord has not done it. That is the answer to that rhetorical question. And the context for the words here are God's judgment that he's bringing on Israel. When the trumpet blows, folks, 
And when there's an army that comes against this city, you Israelites, you can know where it's from. It's from the Lord. And he goes on in the next verse to say, Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. And what that is, is the warning of the book of Amos. Amos was telling those people, God has sent me to warn you, judgment is coming. Shall there be evil in a city, and the Lord hath not done it? No. There cannot be evil in a city when the Lord has not done it. That is a rhetorical question, meaning the answer is obvious to all who know the truth. There has been evil in a city, and the Lord has done it. And the first thing we need to know as Christians, and our children need to know, God is sovereign. Amen. Jesus Christ is Lord. And as has been prayed this morning, he is sitting on his throne, ruling the nations with a rod of iron. And as a couple sent me in emails this week, he has slightly moved his rod of iron because that is a small movement compared to what he can, could, and will likely do against a nation so bent on despising him. Amen. God is sovereign. God's sovereignty gives us comfort in the face of horrific events because we know that God is in control of them. When a storm comes, we we are more quick to give God the credit for storms, and we call them acts of God. I remember as a boy, you know, just hoping when I went to bed at night and it was snowing that it would keep snowing all night so that they'd have to close school the next day. And we called those days acts of God because man can't stop the snow, can't start the snow, doesn't really know where the snow comes from, and so he gives credit to God for those events in the natural realm easily. But brethren... God is just as much in control of the movements of men as he is the clouds that drop snow. God's sovereignty can give us comfort because we know that he is in charge. We need to know and defend this doctrine, not just because we believe in election. When we say the words, the sovereignty of God, we just don't mean that he elects sinners to salvation and he passes by others in his horrible act but righteous, of reprobation. What we mean is that daily in our lives, God is in charge. And it's very comforting to know that someone is in charge and the one in charge has perfect intelligence, infinite wisdom, and is our lovingly kind, beneficent, heavenly Father. That is comforting. We can face anything. The greatest soldiers the world has ever seen have been Christians because they served a wise and benevolent God, not out of sheer fear or terror of an emperor that would kill them if they turned around and ran, but they served a living God that propelled them by his spirit in the inner man, that he was in charge. Look at the word of God and see there a David running down to meet a Goliath. What in the world would possess a young man to go face a nine foot nine inch Goliath fully armed and all David has on is a little a few shepherd clothes? What does that? The absolute sovereignty of God. Do you know what he said when he came upon that army? Listen, he was so young he couldn't even get drafted and he couldn't volunteer. Dad made him stay at home to tend sheep. But when he happened upon that army and saw that blaspheming Philistine out there, what were his words? Is there not a cause? Now, what would give a man that kind of confidence but a man that understood the sovereignty of God? Is there not a cause for me to go down and fight him? What's the cause? There's a God in heaven. This nine foot nine inch runt is blaspheming that God. I'm going to go and defend God's integrity and God will be with me. And while eight foot, eight inch Saul wouldn't go down and take on the Philistine, David did. We don't know how tall Saul was. The Bible tells us that from his shoulder up, he was taller than any man in Israel. That's pretty tall. The sovereignty of God. I want you to turn back a few pages to a book between Jeremiah and Ezekiel. It's the book of Lamentations. And let's see another verse that God gives us to know about such things, that he is in charge, he governs all events. This is what we mean by the sovereignty of God. God is king. God is the governor and ruler of the universe. 
Nothing happens outside his control. He purposes the things that happen. He works them and he overrules them to his own honor and glory and to the profit of his people. Always, without exception. No matter how evil. Brethren, let me jump ahead just a moment. What was the most evil event that's ever took place on this planet? The crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Do you know what it tells us in the Bible in Acts chapter 2 and verse 23 and Acts chapter 4 and verse 28? That the things that happened to Jesus Christ were by the determinate counsel of God. And whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined to be done. And that was the most evil event that ever occurred. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 37. Who is he that saith, and it, Lamentations 3, 37, Who is he that saith, and it cometh to pass, when the Lord commandeth it not? Notice it's a question mark. No one can say that something just came to pass when the Lord commanded it not, because events come to pass based on the Lord's commandment. Out of the, most high, out of the mouth of the Most High proceedeth not evil and good, Doesn't both good and evil come from the mouth and the commandment of the Most High? Yes, both come from the mouth of the Most High. Let me show you that by turning to Job. Job chapter 2. Job chapter 2. If we were to have those learned doctors with us this morning that were at that national prayer service on Friday, and we were to say that this event was by the plan and decree of the Most High God and according to His determinate counsel they would most seriously object and complain that God doesn't do anything like this. We'll show you. Just continue to follow. Shall there be evil in a city? And the Lord hath not done it. Now Job had quite a bit of evil happen to him. Death, mayhem, destruction. He's broke. He's lost his health. He's sitting in a pile of ashes, scraping himself with a broken piece of pottery. He has lost everything except a woman. He should have lost her. But anyway, his wife came along and said to him, Job chapter 2 and verse 9, Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. Blame God. Look what God's done to you. You should be angry with God. Curse God and die. What does a wise man respond? How does a wise man respond? He said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. And don't we have a lot of them today? All wanting to give their opinions. What? Notice Job's response. Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. It is the hand of God. It is the hand of God that brings good and evil. Amen. Amen. We are quick to thank God when good comes. We've done it this morning already with the birth of a new son to the Jones family. We're quick to give thanks. But brethren, when evil comes, we should be just as quick to humble ourselves before God and ask why the adversity is there. Because both good and evil come from the hands of God because God is in charge of it all. Job knew exactly where his losses came from. Whose hand? God's hand. Even though it was Satan that was the actual stooge that was executing the judgment against, the, the, the events against Job. Do you understand that? If Satan, doing something that Satan chose and requested to do against Job, is still called God's hand, how much more should we say it's God's hand when it's some little man like Osama bin Laden? It's God's hand. So when we look at the event, we have to see the hand of God. Amen. They call tornadoes. If you, some of you, there was, I think, a movie three or four years ago. I can't remember the name of it right now, but it was about tornadoes. Remember, they, they grade tornadoes in a scale yep. up to a certain point, And then it, when a tornado exceeds all of them, they call it the finger of God. The finger of God. We need to see that finger and hand of God in all the affairs of men because God is in charge of all the affairs of men. And so it is God that executed such an efficient act of terrorism this past Tuesday. More, 
More is coming. Look at Isaiah 45. Isaiah chapter 45. When I just said more is coming, I want to show you more evidence that God is behind all such events. Oh, what insanity results if we think that this world is chaotic and these are random events and they're out of control. That's insanity. To know that God is directing every bolt of lightning and every plane filled with gasoline driven by suicide bombers is comforting. God is in charge of it all. Isaiah 45 and verse 7, here's God speaking of Himself. Look at verse 5 to know who is speaking. I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. He's speaking about Cyrus. Isaiah 44 and Isaiah 45 are fabulous chapters. 200 years before Cyrus was born, God called Cyrus by name and told Cyrus how he was going to take over the city of Babylon. What I referred to earlier this morning when we were, when I was commenting on Psalm 9. Isaiah 44 and 45. It's wonderful. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me. The last part of verse 5, that's God speaking in the second person to Cyrus. But anyway, come down to verse 7. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now let me rightly divide the word of truth here, lest we make God the author of sin. God is not the author of sin because sin springs from a heart of rebellion against God's commandments. It originated that way in Satan himself, who was not content as Lucifer, the archangel of God, the the anointed cherubim of God. He was not content with his exalted position, but wanted to be like the Most High. Sin originated in that rebellion. It flows from the choice of rebellion against God. Sin originated in the human race when Adam and Eve ate the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The evil here is the evil of judgment, adversity, trouble, disasters, and so forth. It is not God putting into the heart of man the desire to do evil. He doesn't have to put in the heart of man the desire to do evil. He doesn't have to put in the heart of man a desire to do evil enough that he would sacrifice his own life by flying an airplane loaded with gasoline into a high glass tower. He doesn't have to put it there. All he has to do is withdraw his restraint, and many men would do that. Amen. When it says, I, the Lord, create evil, it's I, the Lord, create trouble, adversity, disasters, and judgments. It is not infusing into the heart of man a wicked desire to rebel. James chapter 1 tells us all of that very, very plainly. Right. For us not to be deceived, nor to be in error on that point. But every man sins from the lust of his own heart. But I want you to notice that I, the Lord, do all these things. So when you look at that event and you keep hearing over and over how evil it was, how evil it was, the Lord is still in charge of it. Amen. Still in charge of it. Remember, he was even in charge of Satan, afflicting Job so horrendously, even though Job had not done anything worthy of that. It was simply Satan trying to get him to blaspheme persecuting and torturing him to get him to blaspheme. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. The godly perspective must start with God is sovereign. Jesus Christ is Lord. There is a governor of the universe and a ruler of this world, and it is the Lord God our Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And God has put all authority into the hands of Jesus Christ. He is a man that sits on a throne at the right hand of God, and he rules the nations with a rod of iron. Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. Ecclesiastes 7.14. We're thankful today for a family that's had another son added to them. It's a day of prosperity. We're joyful with them. But in the day of adversity, consider It doesn't say rejoice. It says consider. God also hath set the one over against the other. God sets days of prosperity and days of adversity against each other to the end that man should find nothing after him. It's all in the hands of God. Days days of prosperity and days of adversity. When it's days of prosperity, we thank God and rejoice for His goodness. When it's days of adversity, we consider 
Where have we offended the Most High? Because there is nothing outside His control and government and His providential care in the affairs of men. There are no random events, brethren. There is not chaos in the earth. There is not coincidences. There are no natural laws operating outside His determining counsel. All things are under His control. We understand all events to be by the plan, the permission, the providence, and the purpose of God, and we use all those words together. There is no such thing as God permitting an event to happen without it being His will that it shall happen. Amen. That should be, that is so simple to understand. If God permits it when He could have restrained it, then God has purposed that it would happen. Even when He is using sinful stooges as those that are actually executing His purpose. Do you remember David when his son, when the child of Bathsheba fell sick? And God said, the child is going to die. Remember, David fell down on his face and fasted and prayed for seven days for the life of that child. At that point in time, he did not know the will of God about the life of that child. He was pursuing the life of that child the same way that Hezekiah pursued his own life. Remember, Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed, and God had mercy on him and gave him 15 more years. David was doing the same thing while he could not discern the will of God. Now, he could discern that the will of God was for the child to be sick. The will of God was for him to get the message the child's not going to live. But while the child was still alive, he did not know whether the Lord might be merciful and grant him an extension. And so he prayed. But as soon as the child died, he got up and he washed his hands and he said, let's eat because the secret will of God had then become the revealed will of God in the sense that David could now see God's will in the matter. We do not know the specific circumstances of the individuals most affected and afflicted by what happened in New York. We do not know that. That's in the secret will of God. We can, however, look at the Word of God, understand the sinful condition of our nation, and know that God should be sending judgment on our nation. And we can see, by looking at those World Trade Centers, which are now reduced to a couple stories of rubble, that it was God's purpose for them to collapse to sidewalk level. We can see that. The specific examples of the individual lives and families, which are enormous in the complexity, all of that is in the secret will of God. We do not know that. But what God does reveal by His Word about sinful nations and what He'll do to them, And what God does reveal in time, we understand to be His providential purpose and plan by His determinate counsel. We don't speculate about the future or His hidden wisdom in past events because we only know what we can see and what His Word tells us. When we see something like this World Trade Center event, we need to respond accordingly by humbling ourselves and asking God to search our hearts and know us, and try us, that if there be any wicked way in us, we can repent. And then to freely confess to all that this nation should repent, and it deserves what happened, and it deserves far worse. The Bible says the secret things belong unto the Lord our God, Deuteronomy 29, 29, but the revealed things belong unto us and to our children, that we may do all the words of this law. Turn with me to James chapter 5. James chapter... Four, excuse me, James chapter 4. I want to establish the fact that the will of God is entirely pervasive to all events of men. Whether it was the wicked Jews and Romans crucifying Jesus Christ, they did whatsoever His hand and counsel had determined before to be done. And that is what we believe. That did not free them from their sin because they were not doing it to please God. They were doing it to please themselves and to persecute Jesus the Christ. So they were held accountable and God judged them for it and burned up their city in 40 short years. But He used their malice to accomplish His purpose. And His providential arrangement of the events at the cross. Remember, when they came to Jesus, He was already dead what would have been their custom? Break Break the legs of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
But the Passover lamb could not have any bones of it broken, so there could be no bones broken in Jesus Christ. So when they came to Jesus Christ, he was already dead, and it wouldn't have been hard for a Roman soldier to go ahead and break the legs of a dead man. They didn't break them, but instead of going on to the next thief and breaking his legs, what did they do? They pierced his side because there was a prophecy that said, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. Do you see how God is directing all of the little details? A man's heart deviseth his way, but the Lord directs his steps. What floor the plane hit were the steps directed by God. The malice and wickedness that piloted the plane into the tower came from the heart of a sinful man. That he was able to get into the cockpit that those passengers didn't overpower him, that there was enough fuel that one billion contingent events occurred in the right connection and order for it to happen was by the providence of God. The wickedness flowed from their hearts, but God directed them. A man's heart deviseth his way. This is Proverbs 16.9. But the Lord directeth his steps. Those Roman soldiers, all they were doing was their job. They had punched in earlier that morning, and they were crucifying a man. They'd done it many times before. They had broken many legs. They hadn't pierced very many sides. Their heart was simply to do their job, but their steps were directed by God so that all the prophecies concerning Jesus Christ were fulfilled. Not a bone of him shall be broken, and they shall look on him whom they have pierced. This is the sovereignty of God. James chapter 4 and verse 15. How far does it extend? Here's how we ought to live because of the sovereignty of God. For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. That is how we should live under the sovereignty of God. If the Lord will, we shall live. Because if it's not the Lord's will, you're not going to live. If the Lord will, we shall do this or that. This talks about business decisions or whether you're going to reach into your pocket right now and get yourself a lifesaver. If the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. That is how Christians live. There is no other way to live. This is how godly people live under the government of God. A man's heart deviseth his way. You want to go into a new business and you've thought it through and you like your, your prospects and your opportunities? Go for it. But when you go for it, you ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this particular business. Because that's what's under consideration here. What's under consideration is going into such and such a city and continuing there for one year and buying and selling, being a trader in that city to make gain. But you're supposed to enter upon that if the Lord will. Now I chase that rabbit because I want to remind you what we believe about the sovereignty of God. It extends to the smallest of matters. The Apostle Paul, in the middle of Philippians, Hebrews chapter 6, do you know what he says? He says, if the Lord will, if God permit, I'm going to try to finish this epistle. you got, you got to read it. That's how much Paul was submissive to the sovereignty of God. God's government of all events is to be trusted. And we can go forth trusting it. Not a single sparrow falls without the plan, permission, and purpose of God. When you look, when you look at that, those 110 stories of glass and steel tumbling to the ground, not a sparrow falls without the plan and the permission and the purpose of God. Every piece of glass, every piece of metal is falling in the direction and in the way. Listen, there was one man that was on the 82nd floor. How many of you have been to the top of the Westin Hotel in Detroit or Atlanta? The, when, the tallest building in Atlanta, when you drive through Atlanta, you, the, it's incre- that's only 70 stories. You take an elevator ride to the top and you think you're in an airplane. But a man was on the 82nd floor when the thing collapsed. Can you imagine that ride? I mean, that beat any roller coaster in the world. And he walked away. God is able to do that. I hear these stories. Some of you tell me about them because I miss them in the news. I love about a tornado. You know, a baby will be found nestled in the branch of a tree someplace. 
not a scratch on it. You say, but he, does, he didn't do that to everyone. He doesn't owe it to anyone. Right. But that he does do it. The arrangement of circumstances sometime is overwhelming. It's all in the sovereignty of God because not a single sparrow falls to the ground and the Lord gave us that example, especially for his ministers, to go out and preach without fear. He said, because I take care of the sparrows and you are of much more value than sparrows. In fact, I've got every hair on your heads numbered. Right. Now that should give us confidence to live without fear because God is in charge of all events. So much is this the fact of the case that when we look at what happened, the towers, the floors, the individuals, the, the section of the Pentagon, every event, the field that it landed in in Pennsylvania, all of it is by the sovereign control of God. We must ascribe everything to the finger of God. Not just big tornadoes, but little ones as well. Amen. It's the hand of God. Job knew that. And it was his wife that was in error. Curse God and die. What kind of a God are you serving that would allow this to happen to you? Oh, has, have there been anything said like that? Oh, yeah. I don't worship a God like that. I don't worship a God that allows events like this to happen. I don't worship a God that purposes events like that to happen. They're talking just like the foolish women. They're not even worthy of men, and they're foolish women. They're not even worthy of women. They're foolish women like Mrs. Job was. And Job said, what? What? Don't you talk like that? Shall we not receive good and evil at the hand of God? He knew why he was so great, because God had blessed him. Our nation should know why we're so prosperous. It's not because we're smarter than other nations. Man, what were our ancestors doing a few hundred years ago? Wandering through the woods of Great Britain or other places in the world? Superstitious and ignorant. It is by the blessing of God. And when judgment comes, it's by the purpose of God also, and we should look at it wisely. With this knowledge in hand, we can be at comfort all the time. Because we know that the infinitely benevolent Father in heaven, our Father, is overseeing all events to His glory and to our profit. He never hurts us without a glorious cause of His own glory and our betterment. Mm -hmm. Now let's turn to Psalm 76. The first point we've just covered, whenever we look at disasters is to remember God is sovereign and in charge of them all. Right. It's not a coincidence. It's not chaos. It's not random. It's the Lord God and His hand. And we control our hands quite closely, and God controls His closely. Oh, there's so much more in Job's 1 and Job 1 and 2. I may get to it before this day is out, but there's so many verses to look at. Did you know that the hand of Satan and the hand of Job are the same hand as far as Providence is concerned. It's called the hand of God, and yet God said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Why? Because Satan can do no more than God permits and purposes for him to do, and that it is so closely connected that when the judgment happened in Job's life, you could call it the hand of Satan or the hand of God, because all Satan was was the actual executing force that brought the Sabians and the others to clean up on Job's assets. But it was the hand of God. Am I a fatalist? Absolutely not. We have the highest motivation and the highest support and reason to attempt great things for God of anyone in the earth. Because we know that the Lord God, wise and loving Father in heaven, is with us and is in control of all events. So when we pray, we believe we're speaking to someone who is involved in all of the details. So that when we purpose something in our hearts like a new business, we trust Him for all the details. Who's going to call? Who's going to come to the store? We've learned that in our restaurants. You know, when we prepare in the morning and we haven't seen anybody all day and they all drive by the store as fast as they can. I remember in the early days, I used to have this little fleeting thought, maybe no one will come in today. And then all of a sudden, the Lord turns on everyone's stomachs. And about 11.30, they're dumping out of those apartment buildings like ants coming out of an anthill. And we get our little tiny piece of the pie in the Haywood Road area, and we go home. Yeah, I hate confessing it, but I always tell you the truth. 
I would wonder, maybe no one's going to come today. But the Lord always takes care of us. And every customer that came through the door, we believe, and I love to hear my sons pray, especially my oldest son, who does it often, that every single customer in the movement of his legs crossing the threshold of our doorways is by the blessing of God. And so we can attempt things for God and trust Him. Psalm 76 and verse 10. Brethren, many people would agree with us about good events. Many people would agree with us that God is sovereign when it comes to good things. And that's why when something good happens, many Christians will thank God for it. But when bad things happen, they'll say things like, Where was God in New York? Oh. Have you ever heard anything like that? Yes. How could God let something like this happen? Does God control evil events as well as good events? We've already looked at verses that say that, but here's the best one on this point. Psalm 76.10 Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee. The remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. This is a general principle of the universe. It's a fact. It's a mystery. It's one of the hidden things of God that He's revealed to us in His Word. Surely this is not up for discussion, debate, or arguing or questioning. Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee. Are there some people in the Middle East angry at the United States? Oh, yes. Are they justifiably angry? That's something for outside of this pulpit. Well, yes, they are. But are they angry? That's the point. Forget the, forget the pol- politics. Think about the men. Are there angry men so angry and so committed to a cause that they're willing to lay down their lives for their cause? Is there that much anger within them? Yes. Yes. And hatred against the United States. Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee. The wrath of man shall surely praise God. And so their wrath, executed this past Tuesday, praised God because of this rule. This is what we'd call an axiom. This is a worldview that is based on God's word. Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, and the remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. Any other wrath that wasn't going to work the exact purpose and pleasure and praise of God, he restrains. So what he doesn't restrain is his purpose for his own praise. And everything else he restrains. And brethren, he's been restraining for a long time. I have heard sermons when I was a little boy. I've heard sermons when I was a little boy. If God doesn't judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. And we just kept right on going, getting more and more prosperous, more and more peaceful. Remember, that was said back in the 60s when we lost 58,000 in Vietnam. The Lord has been very merciful to us. But he lifted his hands and he did not restrain something this past Tuesday. Surely, this is where we base our lives on when we look at evil events. Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, and the remainder of wrath thou shalt restrain. Whatever is Whatever wrath we're able to witness in the lives of men, God did not restrain it because he allowed it, he purposed it, he planned it for his own praise. Right. We, we know that from Psalm 76.10. The certainty and the clarity of this verse is not to be modified because it's given to us from God for our comfort. We start with this revealed law of God, right here, this principle. Do you remember when you were learning geometry, you had to learn several axioms? And if you could remember those axioms and you could connect them properly, you could pass geometry. Well, if you're going to pass living in this world as a Christian and know God's perspective of things, this is one of the axioms. There's no evil that happens that God hasn't purposed and planned for his own praise. And all other evil, he restrains. And brethren, he restrains most of it. There's lots of people in this world that want to do a whole lot of things. Did he restrain some wrath? If the fourth plane was headed for the White House, did he restrain some wrath? If the third plane was headed for the White House but instead hit the Pentagon, did he restrain some wrath? He directed some wrath. This is the way he's always operated. Does he direct arrows that are flung at a venture? and take out King Ahab, who thought that he could survive that day by disguising himself in battle? Does God restrain evil? 
Are there three events in the book of Genesis, 12, 20, and 26, two times with Abraham, one time with Isaac, when they said their wives were their sisters and God did not allow kings to touch their wives, even though uh, they took them into their collection of wives? We don't know how close they got, but we know that God did not let them touch the wives of those three men. Can God restrain evil? Yes, he can. And the Bible tells us about that, that God kept those kings back and God rebuked them and didn't let them touch his anointed. Joseph's brethren. What did Joseph's brethren want to do to Joseph in their wrath toward him? They wanted to kill him. But what happened at the right time? Did a band of slave traders come by and did one brother save his life by saying, let's sell him instead? And so they sold him. Now, was that just coincidence or was that the plan of God? Amen. That was the plan of God because God wanted Joseph down in Egypt. And the Bible tells us plainly, you intended it for evil. Your hearts were wicked in the matter. But God overruled it and used it for good Amen. to save much people alive. God directs things like that. God restrains evil. He did not allow them to kill Joseph. And Joseph ended up on the throne of Egypt. Three times a year, all the men of Israel could go and worship, and the Bible tells us that God promised, no man will desire your houses, your wives, or your land. Did all the nations around Israel want their land? Yeah, there were quite a few wars fought, don't you think? In the book of Judges and First and Second Samuel, quite a few wars fought. But three times a year, all the men could say, bye, honey. All the men could take off and go to Jerusalem or to Shiloh and worship God, and no man would desire their property or their wives while they were gone. Exodus 34 and 24, God would take away that desire. God restrains the wrath of man. And any wrath that he does allow and purpose, it's for his praise. And we know it from Psalm 76 and 10. I'm just giving you some examples. David was going to kill Nabal. But God sent Abigail. Now did David say to Abigail, Thank you, Abigail, for coming and keeping me from doing a whole lot of violence to your family. No, go read it. It's First Samuel 25 and 34. He gave God the credit. Right. Lord, I thank thee that you have kept me back. Well, now how did he keep him back? By a woman named Abigail. But David gave the credit to the right person. God was in the matter and restrained David from doing something that he would have regretted. Luke chapter 4, Jesus Christ preaches his first sermon. The whole town gets angry at him, his hometown of Nazareth. They lead him to a brow of a hill to cast him off headlong. And Jesus walks right through the midst of them. Why couldn't they touch him? Why couldn't they grab him? Because he restrained them. Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, and the remainder of wrath thou shalt restrain. That time he restrained them. When it came three years later, did he restrain them? Nope. Just to accomplish whatever he wanted to, how, how the Lord wanted to bruise his son. It pleased the Lord to bruise him, and so he allowed and purposed and planned by his determinate counsel to bruise his own son, Jesus Christ, by those Jews and Romans later. Let me say again, you remember the example of Job. Job had the most wrath-filled adversary ever, and that was Satan himself. But Satan could only do what God allowed him to do, and God restrained him from everything else. Remember the first pass? You can have all that Job owns, but you can't touch Job. Right. Do you remember that one? And so Satan comes back after he sees that Job is still retaining his integrity, and he says, I need more, skin for skin. If I can affect his health, he'll curse you to your face. God says, you can have his skin, but you can't take his life. Amen. Satan is operating within very definite and specific constraints by God. Amen. Now, if Satan is operating in such definite constraints of God, how much more Osama bin Laden? Amen. This is what we got to believe about life. Amen. If Satan was, how much more a little guy like him? Amen. God is in charge, and God restrains evil. Therefore, we can always be at peace, for we know that our infinitely wise Father has planned to allow, 
planned to allow any wrath for his glory and our profit that we're able to see without exception. We like to call things acts of God when they're in nature, but they should be calling that an act of God. Right. That would saw, Do you know what difference that would make? If that was called an act of God, all of a sudden, everybody would be thinking, why did God do that? And then it would lead them to repentance. They do it about storms. They still use the words act of God about storms. But why not that event? Because they're not grounded in the word of God. We should look at those towers and see the hand of God. Turning your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah, the 10th chapter. Natural disasters are no more under the control of God than the deeds of men. Though we call the one acts of God and miss God's hand in the acts of others. Now, I want to show you something from the Bible, and I've shown you this before, but I want to show you again. Man will grant that God is in charge of hurricanes, tornadoes, volcanoes, droughts. They'll call them acts of God. Snow days in Michigan. Snow days in South Carolina. They'll call them acts of God. But I want to show you that God is going to use not great, complex events like hurricanes and volcanoes and earthquakes to show His use of men as puppets, He is going to use inanimate objects like tools in your garage to show his control of wicked men's movements. Isaiah 10 and verse 15, speaking of the greatest monarch on earth at the time. Isaiah 10, 15. Shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith? When a man has an axe in his hands and he is hewing down a tree, shall the axe boast against the man and say, look what I've cut down. You want to laugh about it, don't you? For an axe to say that it's the man and his strength in his arms that cuts the tree down. The axe is simply a tool in his hands. It's the man that did the work. Shall the saw magnify itself against him that shaketh it? Now, do we shake saws? You bet. The Bible is so graphic if you'll read it. How do you saw with a saw? Don't you shake it back and forth like that? Shall the saw magnify itself saying, look what I just cut through? Or is it the arm that shakes it back and forth? As if the rod should shake itself against them that lift it up. Or as if the staff should lift up itself as if it were no wood. And this verse is here because God used this king in his judgment on Israel, but that king thought he was pretty powerful. In verses 5 down through verse 14, this king is talking about how well he's done his job. Look at verse 13. By the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I am prudent. Look what this king is saying about himself. And do you know what God compares him to? An axe in my hand. You are nothing but a saw, and I'm shaking you. I am simply using you as a stooge. No, less than a stooge. An inanimate object. I am using you against Israel, and as soon as I am done with you, I am going to punish you. That's verse 16 to the end of the chapter. Acts of God include men and great evil against other men. We already know the principle from Psalm 76 and 10, and here's one of about a million examples in the Bible. Because all of the Bible is based on the fact that God controls all events. So that we are even supposed to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that, and you can make this or that anything you wish, because it's still true, you're only going to do it if the Lord will. Amen. Acts of God include wicked acts of men. Look at Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14. Here is a huge international event. And here's what God has to say about it. Let's see what kind of involvement 
he has. Isaiah 14, verse 24, this is the destruction of the Assyrian Empire and king. The Lord of hosts hath sworn, saying, Surely as I have thought, so shall it come to pass. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. This is an example of the principle, Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, and the remainder of wrath thou shalt restrain. As I have thought, it's exactly how it's going to come to pass. This is God speaking. Verse 25, That I will break the Assyrian in my land, and upon my mountains tread him underfoot. Then shall his yoke depart from off them, and his burden depart from off their shoulders. This is the purpose that is purposed upon the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out upon all the nations. For the Lord of hosts hath purposed, and who shall disannul it? And his hand is stretched out, and who shall turn it back? It is the hand of God. And brother, when you're watching the television replays, it is the hand of God. So we must turn to God, not to the military. They're not going to do anything about it. It's the God that's going to save this nation. And it's the Lord that will save us. There is no blaming of God in such things. Blaming or questioning God is profanely and foolishly wrong. And don't let any of it well up in your hearts or come out of the mouths of your children. And if you see it or hear it on the radio or the television, correct it. We do not blame or question God in His government of such events. We do not want to be like Mrs. Job. I have heard things like, how could God do this? Where was God in New York? God wouldn't do anything like this. You know what Paul would say to any questioning of God like that? God forbid. Yea, let God be true and every man a liar. Hath not the potter power over the clay of to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? Look at Isaiah. Uh, You're in Isaiah. Turn to Isaiah 45 and see the Lord speaking of man as but clay. Isaiah 45 and verse 9. Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Exclamation point. Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. I heard Billy Graham get up in that high and lofty pulpit of the Episcopal Cathedral in Washington on Friday in the middle of that service. And he got up and he said, I don't understand. Let's see the point I want to make here. I know that some of you, I'm quoting to the best of my ability at recollection, I know that some of you are angry with God. Well, I want to tell you that God understands your angry anger against Himself. That's the pastor of our nation. He is the nation's pastor. Let me tell you what God thinks about someone that does that. Job already answered it once. What? You're speaking like a foolish woman. Shall we not receive good and evil at the hands of God? Look at this text. Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. When you're angry about something God has done, you are striving with your maker. Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. Let the broken pieces of pottery strive among themselves. Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth it, What makest thou? Or thy work? He hath no hands. What if you make an image of a little man? Now, I know that some of the, the, the younger sisters in this church on Saturday went and worked in some clay, I believe. Now, what if you had made an image of a little man, but you didn't give it any arms, or you didn't give it any hands? And what if that little piece of clay said back to you, Hey, hey, you forgot my hands. What would you do to that clay? I've already told you what you do. You drop it in a bucket of water and it turns to sand. And that's what the Lord is saying to us. Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Verse 10, Woe unto him that saith unto his father, What begettest thou? Or to the woman, What hast thou brought forth? To complain to your parents for your height, intelligence, or looks is the height of disrespect and irreverence to parents. The point being, Blaming or questioning God is unallowable. We do not do it. We condemn it with a God forbid. Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. And there is an exclamation point there. 
May God have mercy upon us. We don't blame or question God. We shouldn't even be in confusion about God. Billy Graham went on to say, and I'm going to quote him several times. He went on to say, I don't understand evil. I don't understand evil. And I wish I had answers for you on the subject of evil, but I'm just confused and I don't understand about evil. Well, listen, brethren, we understand about evil. It originated with Lucifer in heaven who rebelled against God. He brought it to earth and moved and seduced our, our first mother and our father, Adam, rebelled against God and sin came into the world. And so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned because of our relationship to Adam. We know that from the Bible. We know that evil is not a vague word. Evil is sin. And sin is us disobeying and breaking the commandments of God. We know that sin and evil was planned by God for entrance into this world for Him to provide a Savior for His covenant people to magnify Himself through all eternity for His glorious grace and His everlasting love. We know that. We know that sin and evil was destroyed by Jesus Christ so that sin and death are destroyed with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We know that sin and evil is used by God for His glory. And we know that sin and evil is something that America chooses every single day. Now, where's the confusion? Don't you blame or question God or even sound like you're in confusion when we look at an event like that. There's no confusion. It's the hand of God. Amen. And it's, it's for us to look into our own hearts as individuals and then as a nation and repent. Right. God does not understand our anger against Him. He condemns our anger against Him. You're speaking like a foolish woman to ever say such a thing. And woe to the man that strives against his maker. Right. Job chapters 32 through 42, 11 chapters long. Elihu and God take Job apart piece by piece for blaming God unjustly for what happened to Job. Right. Brethren, that's enough for this morning. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. May we look at all events, not just this one, but all events, knowing that there is a great God that rules in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay His hand right. or say unto Him, What doest thou? Amen. He is our Heavenly Father. Amen. His Son, Jesus Christ, is our Savior. Jesus is Lord. And Jesus is our brother and friend. We can live in confidence, comfort, and peace. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen.